Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air, and hard to believe tomorrow marks the halfway point of the week. Seems like May is really going by quick. I mean, it, it is hard to believe that um, as after today we only have two more weeks left um, for the month. But I, I must say, though, that time just uh, goes by quick. However, I will say this. If, if there is one thing that maybe doesn't go by too fast, it's podcasting. For one, it takes time to do a podcast. And two, it's all about preparation. If you don't take the time or uh, take the proper uh, preparation steps, then how can a podcast on anything be considered great? I know that might sound harsh, but for me, in order to make the podcasts relevant, I need to use my time wisely, and I need to make sure that you know I do my do my homework right, and that includes uh, getting as as many facts straight as possible, because all of that goes into making a great podcast. So, therefore, uh, what we're going to be discussing in this uh, segment of Andrew Waters's "To the End of the World." Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. Uh, we are at the starting point of uh, part two. Part two is about uh, Cowpens, which is located in northwest South Carolina. However, um, in this podcast segment that we will be discussing, uh, we are going to be basically, um, rather I should say, um, talking about a prelude that will lead up to uh, Cowpens. However, we do uh, need to learn uh, other information about what um, was going on prior to Nathaniel Green's arrival in 1780. Of course, I know we did cover um, information uh, that pertained to what was taking place prior to his arrival, but it is fair to say that there is other uh, relevant information that we should um, learn uh, with regards to what was going on uh, prior to his arrival into Charlotte, North Carolina at the start of December 1780. I should also point out that we will be uh, learning um, information about um, not only uh, with regards to uh, Cornwallis's, or I should say General Lord Charles Cornwallis's uh, movement, but we will also learn about one of his um, officers below him who uh, had quite a um, reputation for um, hit for what do you call a uh, brutal uh, style of fighting very similar to how uh, some of the uh, officers engaged uh, fighting uh, tactics on the American side but the officer below uh, Cornwallis is one that uh, must not be uh, forgotten because he is probably the closest uh, British officer how do I say it? He is one of the closest of the British officers who knows how to uh, go about engaging in uh, warfare that uh, we now know as um, irregular style fighting. So our first leadoff question for this podcast segment, um, given that we are now into uh, part two of uh, To the End of the World, is the following. Prior to uh, Nathaniel Green's arrival into Charlotte, North Carolina, did the Continental Army, under the previous uh, commander of uh, General Horatio Gates, operate soundly from a structural standpoint? 
What do I mean, folks, by a structural standpoint? Well, for starters, when I think of structure, how about um, a set of tasks? Uh, how about, um, when I think of structure, how about a definitive game plan of what's going to be going on um, per this uh, day? In other words, what activities could be going on? Or when I think of structure, how about being, you know, organized, okay? Like, for example, is your, has your bed been made? Have you um, swept up? Um, have you um, washed uh, the dishes from the sink, for example? But when it comes to uh, 1780, when we are referring to a structural uh, standpoint uh, from a militaristic approach, it would be fair to say that the Continental Army under... Um, former General Horatio Gates, uh, the Continental, Continental Army did not operate from a structural standpoint. How so? Well, if I had to pick uh, one um, good example of how the Continental Army did not um, operate soundly with regards to structure, it would be fair to say that, um, that there were all kinds of um, problems that the Army endured but how about a, um, a, a matter of um, securing uh, food provisions? Is it fair to say that even um, around the time when Nathaniel Green himself first arrived into uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, that the Continental Army was only about two or three days shy of, um, no, of no longer having um, enough uh, food food provisions that would last uh, past the three-day threshold? Yes. So is it fair to say that under Horatio Gates's command that, um, that there is a constant um, shortage problem with food in the uh, camp amongst, uh, the, amongst the soldiers that are still um, fighting, or that is, uh, the soldiers that uh, make up what's left of this um, nearly defunct Continental Army? Yes. So, given that there are uh, dire shortages with food, this um, caused um, many soldiers under uh, Gates's watch to leave uh, camp quarters without requesting proper consent. You know, it's one thing to um, ask uh, permission to uh, go somewhere outside of um, camp quarters, but at the same time, wouldn't it be um, fair to say that if you leave camp quarters and you get permission, that it, it would be asked of you to return back um, to the camp within, say, 30 to 45 minutes? Yes. But under Horatio Gates's command, there's, you know, there's no structure. So in other words, uh, soldiers are leaving camp quarters left and right. And... You know, they're leaving left and right because so many of them are hungry. So many of them are desperate for, for food. So many of them are desperate um, to ensure that not only will their survival be safe or that their survival will uh, not be in jeopardy, but they are, you know, thinking about their other fellow soldiers or comrades, which, which seems, you know, admirable and all. But there are definitely a lot of risks when leaving camp without getting the consent of uh, those uh, from above you being your superior officers whom are in um, whom have greater command over you the average soldier so 
you know, it's bad enough if uh, soldiers are leaving camp unannounced. But soldiers leaving camp become problems. Well, how do they become problems? Do they become pro uh, potential problems to the um, army itself? Yes. But could they become a greater problem to people uh, on the outskirts of where your um, army unit is encamped? Yes. So we're talking about people like civilians, everyday civilians, families who live in the uh, back country, because we have to remember that uh, where Charlotte, North Carolina is, I mean, for one, it's right on the um, North-South Carolina line, but in that day and time, it was considered backcountry, uh, true frontier territory. So these soldiers, if they're not careful, will become problems, and perhaps they already have become problems to um, a handful of civilians along with families in the backcountry where potential for uh, conflicts over food and property are growing incessantly. And another term for incessantly means out of control. So for these greater, for these conflicts over food and property to become all the more out of control means that everyone, or rather I should say all parties whom are involved, whether it's on the side of the soldiers or just uh, everyday civilians and their families, Everyone's lives are at stake. Well, how can the soldier's life be at stake? Well, let's say you have a group of soldiers who leave, and this happened very frequently at Valley Forge. I probably mentioned it from the previous podcast. But yes, soldiers, and this was happening every in other places too, soldiers would leave. Some instances, yes, they got permission. Other instances, they didn't. But they were um, going into, uh, say, uncharted territory, where they uh, stumbled upon uh, livestock on um, civilians' properties, and it did create conflict, where in many instances the civilians uh, refused to turn over the livestock for the, for the soldiers, largely because they had their own families to think about in terms of feeding. And two, uh, if they uh, did not, um, by deciding not to turn over the livestock to the soldiers, that could also mean a sign of where their loyalties might stand for the war. In other words, perhaps the civilians whom own the property are loyal to the crown, or for, or for all we know, they're neutral. But the bottom line is they don't want any outsiders coming along their property and not only um, disturbing the peace, but becoming a greater threat. So, so th these are the issues that are at stake, folks. And plus, too, uh, there could be a situation where uh, f a family member could say to a soldier, being a patriot soldier, he could say, well, you know, if you want some food, we'll give you some food, but maybe in order for us to give you the food, you're going to have to uh, reveal some secrets. In other words, maybe you, you need to tell us where you're, um, encamp where you're stationed encampment-wise, how many people are there. Think about that, folks. I mean, if you were to share sensitive information to someone you didn't know, do you think you could trust that person to keep their word? No. For all you know, you, the uh, soldier on the Patriot side, could be selling out your uh, country. You could be selling out your entire regiment by putting their lives at stake, all because 
you may claim to be thinking as though you're thinking about the greater unit, but in actuality, you are actually only thinking about what's good for yourself. So the bottom line is, is that um, leaving camp unannounced is bad enough, but doing it so frequently to where problems become so widespread to where civilians, families, you, the soldier, these uh, problems grow all the more out of control, meaning that no one is immune from a conflict. So by the time General Nathaniel Green arrives and he learns about all this activity, these, what do you call it, um, these uh, activities of soldiers leaving left and right without um, formal consent, Nathaniel Green decides to do something about it. He takes swift action by seeing to it that soldiers whom leave camp unannounced, despite the fact that they return, are going to be arrested immediately. That's pretty scary, folks, but you know what? This is all meant to deter further disruption. It is also meant to deter further violations of improper protocol procedures. It's so now for Nathaniel Green, it's one thing now to have officers be given the right to arrest soldiers whom leave camp unannounced. But these soldiers whom leave will also be tried by their peers, meaning their officers and soldiers, only to meet their punishment, being that of public hanging. Well, you know, some people might say that's too harsh. But for Nathaniel Green, he cannot have problems left and right. He can no longer tolerate people leaving at their own expense, but yet not think about the rest of the uh, unit as a whole. In other words, this kind of behavior needs to be quashed from within. And in order for an army to function, everyone has to be on the same page. There has to be structure. There has to be um, a sense of unity. This has to be about us, we, ourselves. This cannot be I, me, myself. So think about it. Soldiers under Gates' command leaving un um, unannounced, that's I, me, myself right there. General Green uh, wastes no time in reorganizing his staff along with overseeing to it that the Catawba River be surveyed. Come December 8th of 1780, six days after he arrives, General Green decides, or I should say determines, that Charlotte, North Carolina is no longer suitable for what's left of the Southern Army forces. In other words, Green's got to um, now decide, okay, we've got to go somewhere else. Um, we need to go somewhere else to get a new start, but we need to go somewhere where it's going to... Um, have a greater impact on the army um, that will improve our situation long term. So as of December 8, 1780, General Green has 821 Continental Infantry. He has 90 cavalrymen, 60 artillerymen, and he has a reserve of up to about 128 Continental backup troops. Now, other um, officers uh, factored in um, what they knew um, in terms of uh, general number findings as to um, 
how many men were available to fight. So based upon their findings and what Nathaniel Green had, it turns out that there was about 2,307 uh, total um, number of uh, men available um, to continue on fighting, but it was nowhere close to what Cornwallis had. But isn't it fair to say that even size alone, in terms of troop strength, does not always guarantee long-term success? Yes, it does. So right now, um, Nathaniel um, Green, he's basically um, David. Cornwallis is Goliath. So Cornwallis may have the numbers, but it doesn't mean that Cornwallis um, is uh, going to be slated for a long-term slam-dunk victory. Now, December 8th of 1780, General Green instructs uh, Thaddeus Kajusko, who is the uh, Army's engineer, to change course in river surveying, where uh, the focus goes from uh, exploring uh, all there is to the Catawba River region, but now uh, Green wants him to go uh, into what is the uh, P.D. River. I know that sounds a little strange, but there is a river in South Carolina east of Camden known as the P.D. River. It's uh, just south of the North Carolina state line around what is known as uh, Sheraw, and that's spelled C-H-E-R-A-W. Uh, I do know this, that Sheraw, South Carolina, is located on U.S. Uh, 301 and U.S. modern-day U.S. 301 and U.S. 1. It was around uh, Sheraw, South Carolina, where the P.D. begins, and uh, for Thaddeus Kajusko, his surveying of this uh, river had favorable findings. And because it had such unique findings, Nathaniel Green seized, seized um, the opportunity to do something that was rather unconventional. He decides to divide up his army. Why do you think he would um, split up his army? Well, for one, times have changed. Two, um, he knows that if the Continental Army is moving as an entire unit and they are caught off guard by the British, that there is a great, uh, a strong likelihood that they could be decimated. And if they get decimated, there is, there will be, there will no longer be a functioning um, Southern Continental Army and the war itself can come to an end. So for Nathaniel Green, yes, this uh, decision to uh, split the army into um, two or more groups is uh, unconventional. But splitting his army in two can mean greater flexibility and long-term survival. Got to be creative when the times um, when uh, the times are um, challenging, or rather, I should say, when the going gets tough. Did General Green and his forces leave from Charlotte, North Carolina for good on December 8th of 1780? What do you all think? Actually, it turns out that they were not able to leave Charlotte, North Carolina for good on December 8th. Mother Nature interfered to where it rained, believe it or not, folks, to where it rained 11 straight days. Can you imagine that? It raining 11 straight days. Talk about a lot of delays. But I think it would be fair to say that even if you were on the British side, you would have been impacted by uh, the delays in weather as well. So, yes, for 11 straight days, 
Mother Nature is interfering where, uh, where it is raining nonstop. But come December 20th, there is finally a break in the weather. The Southern Continental Army finally leaves Charlotte. And in a six-day span, the Army marches 75 miles to get to their uh, camp along the PD River across from Shiraw. So think about it, folks, 75 miles in six days. We all know that 12 times 6 is 72, but if you take 75 and divide that into 6, what do you get? 12.5, or in this instance, 12.5 miles per day. That's a lot of distance, but Nathaniel Green and his men did it in six days' time. So General Green's forces are comprised of 650 Continental Infantry and roughly 450 uh, militia, whereas General Daniel Morgan, whom has now joined up with Green, is going to um, go west of where Green and his forces um, establish uh, camp. They're going to go west from Charlotte on December the 21st with light infantry forces comprised of 320 Delaware and Maryland Continentals, including roughly 200 Virginia riflemen. And then just south of Morgan's route, Lieutenant Colonel William Washington, being George Washington's cousin, uh, led a force of 80 Continental dra Dragoons. You know, this is good that everybody's getting split up, but it's the only way to ensure uh, survival. Because as, as I said earlier, and I can say it again, if everybody goes together, there is a greater likelihood of being caught by surprise. And then you run the risk of not only seeing uh, casualties, but prisoners of war to where once all that happens, who's to say that you could even have a, um, a continental army or a southern continental army in existence? It's just not uh, possible. So therefore, splitting up everyone up into groups will ensure that the Continental Army or the Southern Continental Army will survive not just short term but uh, ha but has a greater chance of surviving um, long term. Whereas Green's forces established their camp encampment setting at Sheraw, General Daniel Morgan's troops ventured into a western district known as 96. That's an interesting um, name, and there still is a, um, a town in uh, western South Carolina today known as 96. It was a one-time vital uh, Cherokee Indian trading station during the colonial era. 96 pertained to the overall distance and miles from the lower Cherokee towns. The 96 district encompassed um, would go about encompassing... Um, modern-day places in the northwest uh, part of um, South Carolina in such places known as uh, Greenwood, Lawrence, Union, Spartanburg, just to name a few. Now, uh, December 25th of 1780, Daniel Morgan's forces set up camp within the 96th District nearby present-day Spartanburg, they were joined later on in the same day by South Carolina militia Colonel Andrew Pickens, whom brought with him a hundred men from South Carolina and Georgia. Andrew Pickens is one of those individuals who is no stranger to war. As a matter of fact, his Revolutionary War um, 
experiences date as far back to 1775 when he fought at the Battle of 96 on November uh, the 19th of that year. And what makes uh, the Battle of 96 in um, November of 1775 so unique was that it was the Revolutionary War's first military battle in the Carolinas. Of course, more often than not, when all of us think of 1775, what are we thinking? We often think of the following. The shots heard around the world well to the north in Massachusetts at Lexington and Concord, followed by um, what happened on June the 17th of 1775 at Bunker Hill. But believe it or not, there was a conflict or um, battles that took place in the South in 1775, uh, most notably at uh, 96 in November of 1775, and then uh, down in uh, Great Bridge, Virginia, which we now refer to as uh, present-day Chesapeake, where um, Patriot forces defeated uh, Lord Dunmore's uh, Ethiopian regiment. Now, prior to Nathaniel Green's arrival in the South, the 96th District, or the District of 96, I should say, had endured a harsh civil war from within uh, the state of South Carolina where Loyalist and Patriot militia units engaged one another in a never-ending barrage of barbaric activities, or what we would probably think of now as um, acts of extremism. Of course, when we think of extremism uh, these days, it's more often the extreme left and the extreme right and from a political perspective, but we have to remember in, during, this, um, during this Revolutionary War that when it comes to extremism, we are talking about um, people choosing a side, but are engaging in um, warfare as a means of resolving their problems. So what the British, it would be fair to say that what the British don't realize is that, um, yes, they're trying to, um, to inspire those whom are loyal to the crown by engaging in an uprising that would uh, assist them and quashing what is left of this um, existing rebellion. However, what they don't realize is that it's really more of a internal civil war between those um, people based upon their loyalties. You either are for the Patriots or you are um, loyal to the crown, but yet it doesn't automatically mean that just because you're loyal to the crown that you will uh, still be uh, valued and um, treated um, 100 percent um like you would as if you were um as if you were from england and serving directly within the uh, king's army what um ensued around the uh confines of 96 in the final days um leading up to 1780 ending what do you all think uh, ensued around the confines of 96? Would it be fair to say, though, that it was something um, that pertained to um, battle-related um, matters? Yes. An engagement, or I should say a battle, ensued between uh, patriots and Tories. Tories is another word for uh, loyalists. It occurred at a place known as Hammond's Store near present-day uh, Clinton in uh, Lawrence County. 
Nathaniel Green received uh, in an intelligence report from, a, from Lieutenant Colonel William Washington advising of Tory raids in the greater 96 uh, region. So this isn't just one little isolated um, raid that, um, that may have taken place within the 96 region. The Tories are on a, um, are on a mission. They don't want to beat those whom are um, for independence. They want to pretty much destroy everything that they can in, within their sight and that is destroy everything that um, those whom are against the crown um, stand for. If even if it means um, even if it means taking out those whom they don't like, even if it means um, depriving um, people of um, fundamental essentials. So. Would it be fair to say that um, women, or I should say mothers and children, were the ones whom were um, impacted the most by all this um, unnecessary uh, plundering by, uh, by loyalist um, militia units? Yes, they were. And historians do know that um, for those uh, mothers whom either lost uh, husbands during the uh, Southern uh, conflict or um, lost uh, husbands in general whom fought, say, north of South Carolina, the mothers and their children would uh, travel with the soldiers on the Patriot side. I'm sure that there were mothers along with their children whom traveled with British soldiers um, as well, whom were loyal to the crown, but they did this because they had nowhere else to go. Who's going to look after um, for the widows and their children? So finding refuge within an army based upon where your loyalty stood really was, in a sense, a way of ensuring that you, uh, that the mother and her children were going to be protected, not just short-term, but long-term. So, Yes, women and uh, children, or maybe I should say mothers and their children, were the ones who were often deprived of all essential necessities uh, during, this, during the uh, Tory raids within the greater 96 region. And the mothers and the children were sadly left homeless as a result of uh, Tory um, forces destroying uh, homes and um, setting ablaze um, not just destroying the homes, but setting um, the homes ablaze by fire. So basically, these um, these widowed mothers and their children have nothing to go back home to, and therefore that's why the only other viable option would be for them to uh, travel with the Continental Army as a means of long-term survival. Now, uh, December 29th of 1780, deadly fighting did take place where Patriot forces claimed victory in killing around 150 Tory soldiers, including capturing around 40. This was Hammond's store. Well, I don't know if I would consider it as a true battle. Uh, some people would say it could be seen as a, uh, a skirmish. But the engagement, uh, to many historians, was more about... Um, slaughtering the enemy versus uh, engaging them in a traditional battle. 
about seven months before December of 1780, the British had engaged in uh, their share of barbaric activity where over a hundred American uh, troops under um, Colonel Abraham Buford at Waxhaws lost their lives all in the midst of um, waving the truce flag at the last minute only for, um, for a soldier on the continental side to have accidentally uh, fired but he fired at an officer whom was revered by his um, troops below him. That officer being Bannistry Tarleton, whom we will be discussing here shortly. Tar Tarleton was shot, but the British did not like the fact that the um, soldiers were firing at their commander, so the soldiers took it upon themselves to ignore the truce flag and went about massacring over a hundred of American troops. These men were massacred mercilessly to the point where the um, rally cry became known as the following for the uh, patriots, those whom survived. Remember the Waxhaws. So forward seven months later, December 29th of 1780, Patriot forces have killed around 150 Tory soldiers, captured 40. This was not a battle. This was an engagement seen more as um, a means of, of a slaughterhouse. And really, in a sense, would it be fair to say that all of this barbaric activity between those loyal to the crown and those who are patriotic is nothing more than a um, best-case example of what the Old Testament, um, the famous Old Testament phrase known as the following goes, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So for these patriots, yes, they may have gotten revenge, but it's almost as if they were saying to the Tories or the loyalists, you hurt us seven months ago. Now it's our turn to extract revenge, and we are going to hurt you the same way that you hurt our fellow brethren seven months earlier. Scary stuff, folks, to say the least, and it probably should um, serve as a reminder that uh, South Carolina saw more casualties in the war than any other uh, colony. 20% of all of the uh, casualties from the American Revolution happened in South Carolina. Now, uh, moving on to uh, Bannistray Tarleton, where, um, or rather I should say, um, was Pr British Colonel Bannistray Tarleton born into a world of privilege just like General Lord Charles Cornwallis himself had been so? The answer is yes. Bannistray Tarleton was born in 1754. He hailed from Liverpool, north of London. Of course, when I think of Liverpool, England, I tend to think of a, a band that made headwaves by arriving into the United States back in 1964. Of course, I wasn't alive in 1964, but I've seen footage of it on television. Um, those fellows' names were John Lennon, George Harrison, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, a.k.a. The Beatles. So yes, anytime when I think of Liverpool, England, they're usually the ones that come to my mind. But yes, Bannistray Tarleton hailed from Liverpool. 
His father was a one-time mayor of Liverpool. Tarleton, um, given that he came from a, um, uh, I guess you could say like an aristocratic or well-to-do family, he didn't have any trouble being educated at uh, fine schools like uh, the University of Liverpool and Oxford. Although he did study law in London, he didn't become a lawyer. <laughs> On one hand, maybe that's a blessing, but unfortunately, um, Banistray Tarleton squandered um, his family inheritance via by gambling. Well, I'll tell you, gambling is a dangerous activity um, to be a part of. And of course, back then, they didn't have any of those uh, programs that one could go to for, um, for help, like Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, the bottom line is, is that, uh, sadly, Banistray Tarleton um, squandered his inheritance. But how can he get back into, um, or rather, I should say, how do you think Banistray Tarleton can avoid further troubles? Well, in April of 1775, at the age of 21, he enters the British Army. Is it fair to say that, uh, given... Um, his problems with gambling, is it fair to say that he could not afford to buy his own commission? Yes, it is fair to say that the felt that the gentleman could, or the man rather, I should say, could not afford to buy his own commission. His commission was, brought, was bought through other family relatives. His commission was that of a, a cornet. I know cornet sounds strange. I can tell you what a cornet is. It is the lowest level of officer rank within the British cavalry. This uh, rank is the equivalent uh, to a modern-day rank of second lieutenant. So Tarleton serves in the King's Dragoon Guards. His first assignment in the Revolutionary War involved seeing action in Charleston, South Carolina, come June of 1776, and the first attempt on the British's um, end to uh, capture Charleston uh, was met with defeat. Now, uh, what elite unit had Banistray Tarleton joined come August of 1778? Well, by August of 1778, Banistray Tarleton um, goes about joining the British Legion However, the British Legion that he joined did not um, form in England. It was a unit originally started by American loyalists from New York and Philadelphia. So yes, it's great that uh, for those of you who uh, want to be loyal to the crown, and you want to form your own um, British Legion, that's great. However, there is a disadvantage. Those uh, loyalists in America, that say from New York and Philadelphia, whom form the British Legion, do not receive the same benefits like British soldiers directly from England. To me, that's a disadvantage, because now you have to wonder, will the British Legion that was formed in America be valued in the same manner that um, those um, British cavalry riders who came over from England, um, in other words, is there going to be mutual respect? I would like to think there would be if you're on the side of the loyalists, but we should keep in mind that just because you're loyal to uh, king and country and you live in America, that doesn't automatically mean that you're going to be revered 
and respected by a um, British officer coming from England. Now, I should uh, point out uh, some uh, information with regards to uh, legions, because it is of uh, relevant importance to know. Most legions, or what we another name for legion being a unit, most legions, or I should say units, formed in two halves, comprised the following, light cavalry, or what we refer to as uh, dragoons, but how about uh, dragoons and light infantry? So we've got uh, light cavalry and then uh, dragoons, or what we know as uh, light infantry. Now, of course, when we think of light, L-I-G-H-T, what do we think of? <laughs> like a light bulb, like turning the light switch on. Well, that's not what we're referring to here, folks, from a militaristic perspective. Light and warfare terminology pertains to greater troop mobility from point A to point B with less equipment to carry, or rather I should say transport. What do you think the primary function of British Light Infantry was all about? Well, to me, the primary function of British Light Infantry pertained to uh, engaging in um, engaging the enemy in uh, skirmishing and skirmish activity by uh, participating in skirmish-related activities, the British were using smaller um, forces or smaller numbers within a regiment that would be able to uh, go about making their presence known and catching the opposition off guard. So it's one thing to catch the opposition off guard, but these skirmishes are meant to um, do something else for the greater um, army. What they are meant to do um, for the greater army is to ensure that, that the um, regulars, that the regulars were protected from all corners. So if the regulars need to be protected from all corners, what in a sense, are you needing to protect if you're going to be engaging in a skirmish activity? You need to ensure that the regulars' flanks are protected. The flanks are going to mean like your corner, your end. End on the left, ends on the right. Skirmishing helped prevent um, ambush attacks. So in other words, skirmishing is all about not just confusing the enemy, it's to throw them off guard to where if they retreat, then it would be okay to bring everyone else who is behind you by going forward. Now as for the dragoons, does anybody uh, want to take a guess at what dragoons are? Dragoons are uh, soldiers whom do two things. Well, they serve their purpose. A dragoon's purpose is one of dual, a dual role. Dragoons are soldiers whom ride by horse, but they can also um, mobilize by getting off a horse and engage the enemy uh, by foot. That is, engage the enemy in land uh, combat. So if you're, if you're riding by horse, are you going to be able to... Um, transport a rifle or a musket no those whom are uh, dragoon uh, riders are usually your officers and they could also uh, be of uh, light infantry uh, use 
But dragoons, uh, when they are by horse and they need to um, fire a shot, they're going to use a pistol. You know, pistols are uh, much smaller, but they are uh, much more uh, suited for uh, better transport use than a rifle. You know, if you're on mounted on horseback and you need to fire, it's going to be a lot easier to reload with a pistol versus a rifle. So, um, yes, it's very good to have um, not only light infantry, but dragoons that can do more than just ride by horse. They can serve dual purpose. Now, prior to the infamous Waxhaw Massacre, uh, Banastre Tarleton's legion already had earned a bad reputation. Why do you think they've earn, have earned, been earning a bad reputation for so long? Would you, is it fair to say that even Tarleton's legion has engaged in the same activities as loyalist militia units from within uh, the state of South Carolina are already doing so? Yes, they are. Uh, Tarleton's forces are attacking innocent civilians left and right. And it's not so much that they're attacking innocent civilians. These actions are resulting in improper structure. That is, Tarleton is not setting a good example by allowing his forces to not only destroy um, property, but they are also, um, in some instances, folks, um, how do I say this without going into a whole lot of detail, but uh, British soldiers were known to take advantage of uh, women and all the wrong reasons um, possible. So in other words, a, a lot of improper activity in terms of um, mistreating uh, women came under Tarleton's watch, but yet he did nothing about it. So... Sadly, for Banastre Tarleton, I can see, sadly, why he is called Bloody Ban. He's ruthless. I mean, he is, uh, a, you know, in the eyes of British officers, yeah, they like a guy who's aggressive and can lead, but yet he does not set a good example for, um, he doesn't set a good example when it comes to knowing what is appropriate and not appropriate to be doing. It's one thing to attack your enemy, but should you be attacking innocent civilians? I don't think so, but isn't isn't that even a problem in today's um, modern times? Yes. Tarleton uh, found himself um, having to add new recruits to his legion. How so? Well, previous troops had either died or they were suffering injuries, and in some instances there was desertion. But replacements, believe it or not, folks, also included imprisoned, American troops from the Camden battle. And, uh, you know, they were pretty much given, these American troops were given uh, an ultimatum. If you join uh, the British, if you join the side of the British, you will be forgiven of all your wrongdoings. But if you choose to take up uh, sides with the Patriots, while being a, a prisoner of war, you will be sent aboard a prison ship to die. Well, it is fair to say, and historians know, that there were many uh, prisoners on the Patriot side who remained aboard prison ships because they did not want to switch loyalties. They would rather die and keep their fellow countrymen fighting um, from above alive. But there were those whom did take up uh, sides on the British. Of course, the British knew that these were not um, real men of uh, British loyalty, but they were so desperate for men that they needed 
uh, to fill the, the missing gaps. Would Car Colonel Tarleton experience defeat in South Carolina for the first time before 1780 ended? Yes, his first taste of defeat happened on November 20th at a place known as Blackstock's Farm, uh, located near Union in northwest South Carolina. Banastray Tarleton sought to disrupt Thomas Sumter's backcountry momentum, but Sumter had about a thousand militia troops. He had far more men than Tarleton did, but what, but what Thomas Sumter got in terms of uh, an even bigger boost uh, was something that he'll never forget. He got a unique gift from a British deserter whom shared with Sumter all of Tarleton's strategies, including the location of where Tarleton was currently um, positioned at. Well, by the time Tarleton goes about executing his uh, strategy, it backfires immensely because within two, because after two hours fighting, Tarleton lost 192 uh, men. Actually, I take it back. He um, lost 92 men. I take it back, along including 76 wounded. It was bad enough that Banastray Tarleton lost to uh, Thomas Sumter. It's not so much that he lost to Thomas Sumter, but does Thomas Sumter have regular Continentals or Continental regulars, or does he have militia troops? Sumter has militia troops, folks, and who did Tarleton lose to? He lost to militiamen whom he had no regards or respect for. He considered the militiamen to be weak Men whom were cowards, men whom ran every time they saw British soldiers. Well, it turns out that this time around, Tarleton got, um, he got whipped. And he got whipped pretty bad to where those um, whom were not the most revered do know how to fight. They may not have top-of-the-line clothing, but they know what it takes to fight. Now, around January the 1st of 1781, General Cornwallis received word of the Tory defeat at Hammond's store, along with intelligence reports dubbed to be false about Patriot movement into 96. Even with these false intelligence reports, it is fair to say that it is, um, it's throwing all kinds of curveballs for Cornwallis. Around the start of January 1781, uh, Tarleton and his forces are stationed at uh, Briarley's Ferry on the Broad River, halfway between Winsboro and 96, about 40 miles south of where Daniel Morgan and his forces stood along the Pacolet River, or what we call the Broad River Basin. Now, uh, going into the start of January 1781, did General Cornwallis have more advantages? Well, I would say that's an easy yes. His army was better trained. His army was better equipped, better armed and disciplined. Well, my gosh, if you were better trained, better equipped, better armed and disciplined, shouldn't you be able to uh, strike a decisive blow into the enemy? That is what's left of the enemy. You would think, but just because you're better armed and disciplined and equipped it doesn't always translate into an easy victory. Not just a victory, but it doesn't translate into an easy slam dunk achievement to where what's left of a rebellion is 
is completely ended altogether. General Greene's forces were well over 100 miles from where Morgan's troops, where Morgan's troop forces stood along the Pacolette or Broad River. Cornwallis uh, is stationed not far from Morgan's encampment. Now, Cornwallis did give Tarleton extra cavalry troops for a surprise attack on Morgan's forces. However, the delays with troop and reinforcement supplies did hinder, or rather I should say did impact, Tarleton's game plan from going forward. Great, just another delay. But it's also good if you're on the side of the uh, Patriots as well. Inclement weather, or rather I should say rain, kept Cornwallis from getting to the spot of uh, encampment at Winsboro until well after January 1st. He did not arrive into Winsboro until January the 8th. Cornwallis's uh, communication network, it's fair to say that it's shoddy. It's shoddy because, for one, British leadership, most notably under Cornwallis, is very unfamiliar with the terrain that they're in. But it's bad enough that they are unfamiliar with the terrain, but the weather itself is impacting the terrain that they're um, traversing along. In other words, that they're navigating along. And because the weather is impacting um, their means of traveling, is it fair to say that Cornwallis does not have an effective uh, communication team that he can go to from all different corners, perhaps, or rather I should say, yes, indeed. You know, he, Cornwallis is, um, um, he's giving Banistray Tarleton um, a lot of assignments, which isn't bad, given the fact that, yes, Tarleton was probably the only one that knew how to fight irregularly but Tarleton himself is caught in the middle between uh, Cornwallis and the officers below Tarleton, whom couldn't agree on a regular unanimous basis on how to go forward, and not just how to go forward, but how to achieve the mission. Cornwallis said, you know, okay, go Tarleton, go and achieve this mission, but Tarleton all of a sudden gets a letter, uh, hold off, let's just wait a couple more days until I arrive. Okay, a couple of days, that's a missed opportunity right there. And another opportunity for the Patriot forces, whether it's Morgan or Green, to be able to go to a new spot where they won't be uh, captured. Cornwallis might have given Tarleton the nod in pursuing General Morgan and his troops, but yet he still remains set in the old conventional ways of traditional warfare, a.k.a. linear combat. He was unable to completely break away from old customary fighting tactics. Yes, he was atop of the Southern campaign after Camden. But Cornwallis still found himself fighting an enemy whom wasn't ready to surrender, even if it meant fighting unconventionally, and even if it meant getting leadership, that is, new leadership, at a moment of time when it was sorely needed. Because without new leadership, how can an army that's on the brink of uh, collapse change its ways of fighting to where um, they go from traditional to non-traditional? It just can't happen. So, yes, you would think after 
August of 1780 that Cornwallis could have put an end to all this. But now going into the start of 1781, he is still in South Carolina. He has not been able to go into North Carolina. He's not anywhere close to Virginia. Cornwallis is still fighting an enemy. He thinks this enemy can surrender. He thinks this enemy is willing to um, finally come to its senses and realize that, hey, we can't fight with you because you have the numbers. Oh, no, we can fight. We're just doing it unconventionally, whereas you all are doing the exact opposite. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, as always, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to uh, learn more about what leads up to the Battle of Calpens, because even that has a story um, to tell uh, for itself. Thank you for your time, as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. Stay safe.